Welcome to Current Radio's Science Station. Please enjoy today's selection of science news. Charlotte, ever dreamt of setting up a lunar base? Well, Diego, I can't say I have, but it seems like the U.S. Naval Research Laboratory researchers have. They've discovered hydrogen in lunar samples. Hydrogen, you say? Now that's intriguing. Hydrogen could mean water, and water could mean... Exactly, Diego. Water could mean a potential resource for future lunar bases and even long-term space exploration. It's all about identifying resources in space. And it's not just about finding these resources, but understanding how to collect them. Dr. Catherine D. Burgess, a geologist in NRL's Material Science and Technology Division, mentioned how crucial this is for space exploration. It's fascinating, isn't it? These lunar soil samples were provided by a NASA-funded research mission. The NRL team is still studying these samples, trying to understand how surfaces interact with the space environment, or space weathering, as they call it. That's right. And this isn't the first time they've found something interesting. They've previously located solar wind helium in lunar soil grains, but this is the first time they've detected hydrogen-bearing species within vesicles in lunar samples. The same team also used advanced techniques like scanning transmission electron microscopy and electron energy loss spectroscopy to detect helium in lunar samples. Other researchers have found water in other planetary samples, but this is the first time hydrogen has been found in situ in lunar samples. This is a big step forward, Charlotte. Their research was even published in the Communications Earth and Environment Journal. The U.S. Naval Research Laboratory is really paving the way for space exploration, aren't they? From the seafloor to space and in the information domain, they're driving innovative advances for the U.S. Navy and the U.S. Marine Corps. They sure are, Charlotte. And with this discovery, they're bringing us one step closer to the possibility of a lunar base. Who knows what's next? From the expansive reaches of our moon to the intricate ecosystems right here on Earth, our next story brings us back home. We're taking a look at a unique initiative that is merging scientific research with traditional knowledge to better understand and preserve our natural world. Stay tuned as we delve into the fascinating work being done in Botswana. Charlotte, today we're discussing an intriguing initiative in Botswana that's combining scientific and traditional knowledge to create a comprehensive ecosystem assessment. That sounds fascinating, Diego. The Botswana National Ecosystem Assessment, or BWNEA, is not just about studying ecosystems, but understanding how communities interact with and utilize them. Exactly. What's unique about this approach is how the BWNEA team is actively engaging local communities, conducting surveys and dialogues to ensure traditional knowledge isn't overlooked. They're even forming a dedicated traditional knowledge task force. That's a significant step. Recognizing these communities as key stakeholders and knowledge holders can offer a wealth of insights. They've held community dialogues in Palapai, bringing together locals and experts to share experiences and insights about the Tswapong Hill ecosystem. And these dialogues are more than just talk. They're shaping the BWNEA's scoping report, helping identify relevant themes and issues. It's a truly collaborative process. Absolutely, Diego. And these dialogues are designed to be inclusive, ensuring all voices are heard. They've even divided participants into groups, customary chiefs, women, elderly men, and youth, to foster an open exchange of ideas. This approach has yielded some fascinating insights. Participants shared traditional conservation practices 
that have sustained the local ecosystem. They also discuss the role of customary governance in natural resource management and the tensions with central government policies. It's clear that there are challenges too, right? Participants raised concerns about environmental challenges like vandalism of water springs and caves, invasive species, and uncontrolled recreational activities. And of course, climate change was cited as a major driver of change. Indeed, Charlotte. But there's a sense of resilience and adaptability among these communities. They're exploring ways to transmit traditional knowledge to future generations through school curricula and cultural festivals. That's the spirit, Diego. While we face significant challenges, there's also a wealth of knowledge, innovation, and resilience to draw upon. The BWNEA is a testament to that. From the resilience of local communities in Botswana and their efforts to protect their ecosystems, we now turn our attention to a global perspective. We're diving into the complex and crucial intersection of climate change and human rights, a topic that is gaining traction in the global discourse. It's a discussion that not only highlights the impacts of climate change on our lives and livelihoods, but also brings to light the legal and moral obligations we have towards ensuring a safe and equitable future for all. Charlotte, let's dive into the intersection of climate change and human rights. Quite a hot topic, isn't it? Absolutely, Diego. In fact, there's a growing consensus that the right to climate change adaptation is wrapped up in existing human rights norms this perspective could significantly shape how we approach climate adaptation. Right, and it's not just theoretical. The United Nations Human Rights Committee found that Australia's failure to protect Torres Strait Islander people from climate change impacts violated their human rights. This is a clear sign that human rights law could drive actions towards climate justice. Climate change is already infringing on fundamental rights, including health, life, food, water, culture, and self-determination. This is particularly true for regions like Oceania, where the impacts of colonization and geographical challenges have made them extremely vulnerable. And it's not just about mitigating the impacts. There's a need for a transformational shift towards more effective and just adaptation. This is especially crucial for the most vulnerable groups, least developed countries, small island states, non-self-governing territories, indigenous peoples, and marginalized communities. Exactly, Diego. And this is where the right to adaptation comes into play. It already exists as a crucial part of existing human rights norms. It obliges states to undertake rights-protective adaptation, both domestically and internationally. This could be a game-changer in the scale and efficacy of adaptation policy and practice. It's interesting to see how individual human rights norms require climate adaptation, isn't it? The right to health, life, food, water, and culture. All these are legally protected rights that are being and will continue to be impinged by climate impacts. And it's not just about domestic efforts. The transboundary nature of climate harms means that states predominantly responsible for greenhouse gas emissions may need to redress climate-related human rights harms beyond their borders. This could be a major step towards achieving climate justice. Absolutely. And there's also the collective right to self-determination, which is crucial for populations at risk of losing their territories due to climate change. This could be particularly relevant for small islands in Oceania, where large-scale adaptation is urgently needed. That's a compelling point, Diego. And this right to adaptation is not just a lofty ideal. 
it's legally binding. Human rights law requires states to undertake adaptation actions. A rights-based approach could transform climate adaptation policy, making it more comprehensive, effective, and just. And that's the crux of the matter, isn't it? It's about more than just mitigating the physical hazards of climate change. It's about addressing the underlying vulnerabilities and inequities that make certain groups more susceptible to these impacts. Right, Diego. And by addressing these vulnerabilities, we can work towards a more equitable future where all individuals and peoples have the right to climate adaptation. It's a challenging task, but it's one we cannot afford to ignore. From the intersection of human rights and climate change, we now shift gears to a topic that might strike a chord with health enthusiasts. Our next story takes us into the realm of critical care and nutrition. A recent study has explored the impact of caloric adequacy on the survival of critically ill patients on mechanical ventilation. Stay tuned as we delve into this intriguing research and its potential implications for patient care. Today we're talking about a recent study that looked at the impact of caloric adequacy on the survival of critically ill patients on mechanical ventilation. Sounds like a mouthful, doesn't it, Charlotte? It certainly does, Diego, but it's an important topic. Basically, the study wanted to see if the amount of calories these patients received affected their chances of survival. The patients were divided into four groups, each receiving a different amount of their required daily calories. Right, these groups were called quartiles. The first quartile received about 26.3% of their daily caloric needs, the second got around 52.5%, the third had 71.7%, and the fourth received over 100%. The study found that, wait, Diego, let me guess, the group that received the most calories had the highest survival rate, right? Actually, no. The study found that the third quartile, the group that received near 70% of their daily caloric needs, had the lowest 28-day mortality rate. Even after accounting for other factors, this group still had a significantly lower risk of death compared to the first quartile. That's surprising. So it's not just about getting more calories? but getting the right amount. Exactly, Charlotte. And this was especially true for patients who had a high nutritional risk at admission. For those with a low nutritional risk, the amount of calories didn't seem to have the same impact. So what does this all mean for the treatment of critically ill patients? Well, it suggests that providing around 70% of daily caloric needs during the first week of ICU stay could potentially improve survival rates. But as always, more research is needed to confirm these findings and to understand why this specific amount appears to be optimal. It's fascinating how, even in critical care, it's not just about more or less, but finding the right balance. Thanks for breaking that down, Diego. Always happy to delve into these studies, Charlotte. It's important to remember that every patient is unique, and what works for one might not work for another. But studies like this help us understand how to better care for those in critical conditions.